Welcome to a special episode of Inside Aesthetics. Our aim is to help educate as many people as possible with up-to-date, factual and practical information. This podcast was recorded on March the 18th, but it's very important to note that things are changing hour by hour. So please keep up to date with your local news for the best advice. This conversation is, as always, unbiased and unfiltered in any way. Thanks for listening, and we send our prayers and best wishes to all of you. Our guest today is Professor Mary Louise McClaws, a leading infectious diseases expert who is actively involved at the highest level in the fight against COVID-19. Professor McClaws is a member of the World Health Organization, also known as WHO, Health Emergencies Program, and is on the Experts Advisory Panel for the response to COVID-19. Professor McClaws previously collaborated with China to review the response to the SARS outbreak. Good morning. Today we have a very special podcast, um, obviously with the coronavirus um, ravaging the world at the moment. It's obviously at the forefront of everyone's mind. So we thought let's try and do an episode to give people a snapshot of where we're at. Um, Jake, you happen to have a very good friend of yours that specialises in this area of medicine. So she we're certainly very lucky. does. Yeah. So, yeah. Would you like so to, uh, yeah. good morning, Professor Mary Louise McClaws. Thank you for having me. That's okay. Thank you for coming. Y- your life must be absolutely mental right now with uh, everything that you're involved in. Can you just give our listeners uh, an insight into, I guess, your background and what's your current role, Mary Louise? Okay, so I have a position at the University of New South Wales. Uh, I am Professor of Epidemiology, Hospital Infection and Infectious Diseases Control. And I also have the honour of being on the WHO COVID-19 Infection Prevention and Control Panel. And how did that come about and how long how long have you been involved in that particular role? Oh, so back in about the early 2000s, I worked for uh, WHO as an advi- WHO advisor. So there's a little difference between advising WHO as an expert or being um, representing WHO. So I was very fortunate to represent WHO on some short missions in China and in Malaysia. And that's with the SARS and... No. Well, first of all, that was with uh, developing surveillance. Right, okay. um, Because my area of expertise was surveillance of infection, particularly in hospitals. So I was um, did that while I also balanced my uh, work at the University of New South Wales. And then I continued uh, my relationship with the World Health Organization as an advisor to their first patient safety challenge, which was hand hygiene. Right. And then I'm a technical advisor um, on their global unit for infection prevention and control. So you know your stuff. (laughs) Oh, well, it it evolves. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. As as we're finding out hour by hour, it seems. So can you maybe just uh, paint a picture of of the story of of what happened in Wuhan and when did it start and, and what do we think triggered it? And then we can, I guess, go from there. Uh, so, um, what we understand, and I haven't been to Wuhan, what, but what we understand is that there was a wet market yeah. where they sold many different types of animals, live and prepared, mm-hmm. uh, that so far the belief is that it was a zoonotic disease, um, possibly brought in by bats Hmm. uh, because bats have many different zoonotic diseases that as we know um, that it then had an enormous 
um, flow-on effect. So there was a cluster and then they went to hospital and then people visiting uh, their families and friends caught it while they were visiting and patients in hospitals caught it while they were there because uh, a drop, this is a droplet infection and droplet infections are very easy to spread in a hospital environment Mm -hmm. or what we call a super spreader atmosphere or environment event. And a hospital, you've got a captive audience, you've got um, very susceptible people, you've got healthcare workers that may or may not be um, very good at one, looking after themselves, putting on a mask if they think somebody has uh, a respiratory infection, or hand hygiening often. So they often, and, and I've done a lot of work in this area across the world, and when we were children, we learnt to hand hygiene about um, getting the yucky germs off our hands so that we are looking after ourselves. So often healthcare workers hand hygiene when they think they're at risk, but there are many times with droplet spread that it's either direct through being close to somebody who's spreading it to you while they're talking or coughing, yeah. and then from high touch surfaces where they've picked it up on their hands yeah. and then taken it to their nose or their mouth. Mm. or other patients. Um, You said what we know so far, and I might just be picking up on semantics, but I sort of got the idea that maybe there's some suspicion that maybe that might have come from a different source or you're not too sure yet or you're open to all options or... Uh, The other other idea is that it wasn't just bats, that there could be some other animal involved. Um, However, uh, this is 80% similar in DNA to SARS. Right. Uh, the um, the coronavirus, the, the, sorry, the virus um, that was uh, part of the family of coronaviruses that caused the 2003 outbreak. Right. Okay. And to be clear, I mean, we've all seen these confronting videos of the wet markets, but are you saying it's just, you know, the, the unsanitary conditions or the eating of the meat or what exactly? Probably both. Right. Uh, because it's droplet and um, uh, potentially you're handling uh, these animals. Uh, there's a, a very unsanitary uh, environment where yeah. you're basically walking through um, the Blood and body guts. fluids of these animals. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the environment is uh, high-touched all the time with dirty hands. Uh, potentially there could have been aerosolization uh, while people are uh, sweeping and doing all sorts of activities. Mm-hmm. So why is that triggered now? I mean, this happens every day. It's not a new thing, the wet market. So what, what's... You know, mm. is this just an evolutionary thing that is going to happen every 10 years? Yeah, look, it's about 17 years since we've had SARS and it's a, it's an interesting problem that you've brought up. Uh, what is it? Um, so in China, they enjoy eating very exotic food. Mm. Uh, and um, so during the SARS outbreak, I would go into my favourite um restaurant uh, across the border from Hong Kong and on the wall there was um, a specialty snake but it was taken off during SARS so they do sell exotic animals Um, not all animals may be potentially at risk to us but there must have been um, a um, and expo- uh, uh, some sort of exposure in the wildlife that they've captured and brought into the humans because bats have 
uh, viruses all the time. Mm. It could have been an increase in bringing the bats in. Um, We still haven't had good epidemiological um, evidence that's been brought to us. I've also signed a confidentiality agreement with WHO. So there are some things that I can't tell you, but I'm, this isn't one of them that I can't tell you. At the moment, the epidemiology of this is still out for investigation. Mm. Now, I don't know whether you, you, whether you will be able to explain this or not, but how exactly do, do viruses like this jump species? How is it that something that would normally only affect animals all of a sudden become a human virus? Well, we saw it jump species with MERS yeah. um, and Ebola, and it's the same sort of thing. Uh, it's what we call bushmeat, where people have uh, taken it, uh, they've been exposed to the to the animal, uh, they've been exposed to their fluids, uh, they haven't either cooked the animal fully or they haven't cleaned their hands. Right. So um, while Ebola was highly uh, fatal, it wasn't highly infectious necessarily uh, if you kept away from vomit and diarrhea and mainly vomit and, and blood. Um, so you saw all those people with, in their hazmats, but you were really more uh, susceptible to picking it up at funerals because part of the behaviour was to kiss the person. So mm. they tried to remove that. Then looking after people who were uh, cases and they their hospitals were so full, it was very difficult to get cases into hospital and so family members were looking after the cases and they often had dirt floors so it was really difficult to keep the body fluids um, away from the the family members. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, once you isolated the person with um, Ebola, it was easier to contain. Mm. This one comes from an animal, a similar animal, the bats, we think at this stage and what makes it difficult to control control, uh, we believe, is the majority of cases are walking around with mild cases and spreading it and traveling. And we hop on aeroplanes. And the last time I looked at the Australian data, 60 odd percent of our cases were related directly or indirectly from somebody who traveled to an epicenter. Right. So I thought it'd be useful just to define two or three terms before we jump into this. So what is coronavirus and what is COVID-19? Coronavirus is the virus that causes COVID-19 and COVID-19 is the disease. So when I went to Geneva on the 11th of February for a meeting with about 400 uh, scientists with all different types of backgrounds, we were entering it and it was called 2019N-CoV. And by the time I left the meeting, it had changed. (laughs) So uh, they have nomenclature at WHO where they know how to um, label uh, diseases. So they've used COVID um, to describe the fact that it was a disease caused by the COVID virus, 19, to describe that that was the year that it occurred in December. Ah, okay, right. I didn't know that. So that would be similar to, say, HIV and AIDS, where the HIV virus leads to the AIDS Correct. Yes, correct. Cool. Okay, so China obviously exploded and then they eventually realised okay, it may be due to the wet markets and they sort of identified why people were getting these atypical pneumonias, would you call it that? So what what do you think of the Chinese response and why have other countries not acted the same? Yeah. 
So, um, at the beginning of around December, January every year, China expects uh, a large outbreak of community-acquired pneumonias. That's just the way it is there. Uh, and it happened similarly in um, SARS where uh, community-acquired pneumonias occurred and they missed the fact that it was SARS and the same thing, they missed the fact it was COVID-19. Now, that's not a criticism because you're they're, they, you know, both um, diseases end up as pneumonia for some people. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, to be expected. They have an enormous population, even in Wuhan. We're talking um, about 53 million, I think, in Hubei. I mean, it's a, it's a huge province and uh, Wuhan is the capital and it's very dense. Yeah. So um, they started seeing some low cases. So if you look at the epi curve, the epidemiological curve, where we put the date down the bottom of the curve on the horizontal and on the vertical, we'll put the numbers. If you have a look, each time they plotted by date of onset of illness. Sometimes we plot by date of onset of, um, or sorry, date of diagnosis because we don't necessarily have good onset. Mm. The numbers were small, 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 but consistent and consistent. And then in January, mid-January, they found that something was amiss. It was not uh, what they expected. Then they uh, identified the virus. Then they shared it with the rest of the world. Mm. So um, back in the 2000s, um, or mid, well, it was about 2007 or something, I um, reviewed the SARS outbreak of Beijing with um, somebody from, several people from the Beijing Bureau of Health. They were very kind in sharing the data. So we looked at that and identified that had they locked down Beijing, the centre of Beijing, very early on, that they could have contained the, the outbreak. Yeah. And they learnt from that. Uh, we published that in America and I find that that's really remarkable and all honour to China for allowing us to do that. So they started locking down Wuhan as soon as they realised because I know that they've been criticised about um, keeping it quiet, yeah. but they were the low-level um, municipality um, members of the party. Uh, and back in um, Beijing, where they've got uh, the Ministry of Health, um, as soon as they realised what was going on, they acted really fast. Yeah. So they then put in place some different infection prevention and control strategies than we want to do here. They put in place, everybody had to wear a mask. They started environmental cleaning. If And this is the interesting part. So social distancing, we know quarantining makes an enormous difference. And so, and isolation and social distancing. So, can I just give an overview of what those three terms are? Yeah, of course, yeah. So, quarantine is basically where you're getting a large group of people, like, for example, um, the Diamond Princess um, or Wuhan, and you quarantine everybody, no in, no out, without special permission. Isolation is where you normally have um, a risk 
of either being exposed or starting to show signs and symptoms. And then social distancing is what we expect you to do in the public, to stay a metre and a half away from, from others. And then you bundle that with good hand hygiene and good cough etiquette and also good environmental cleaning. Yeah. So back to their story. Um, the one thing that they did that we are unlikely to do is to put anybody that had a close contact that po- that tested positive into a central area where they kept you there until you tested negative. We're not doing that. Uh, mostly people are going to hospital because we have enough hospital beds at the moment. But if you've got a risk factor such as travel, you stay at home. Now, this is where we need full cooperation of Australia and our visitors, that when we say isolate yourself for 14 days, we don't mean go to the shops or go to the gym in the hotel um, lobby. We mean stay in your room. And it's a bit, it's a bit like being in jail. You are putting yourself away from others. Now, you can't from your family unit, um, but you practice really good um, cleaning of hard surfaces, cleaning the bathroom, cleaning your hands and cough etiquette. Um, until if You may not even have a cough um, until you either prove that you're positive and then they'll take you to hospital in Australia. Um, but if you were a potential family patient um, uh, contact in China, they will take and you've tested positive because they their, their test rate in Wuhan was huge. Mm. Uh, they'll move you uh, off away from home. And that is a really good idea because it protects all your all your neighbours. I mean, if your neighbours have elderly um, people or and they do have an elderly population or a child, and remember they have a one-child policy mm. where, um, you know, for, for those that are mainly from the Han um, tribal group, there's a one-child policy. If that child, that little child gets sick, um, there's a lot of anxiety. So, yes, they pulled people away into a central area and that's the way they were able to be able to get the numbers down from 80,000 to about 8,900 current cases. Yeah, I mean, Mm. there seems to be like a mixed messaging from exactly what you've just said. You know, you're an epidemiologist. You're probably thinking very practically (laughs) that, you know, if you quarantine these people, you stop the spread. It's just obvious. Whereas what we're doing in Australia and the UK is saying socially... I isolate yourself, but we know that people aren't doing it. We certainly learnt that from influenza, from swine flu and and other um, outbreaks that self-interest usually um, prevails. And this is where uh, we try to make the public plea to not go pick up your kids, not go and do your shopping, to actually do what you're asked to do. There there may be a time when you're going to be electronically surveilled. I mean, if people are coming in, they may receive a phone call from the authorities in your hotel room or ask the hotel um, staff to check you're in your room. Uh, They may need to identify where your phone is at all times by, you know, electronically tracking you. Uh, It's an unpleasant idea. Uh, We don't like that. But um, it's all about the greater good. Mm -hmm. And we've when we live in a democracy, we're very used to thinking about our individual rights. Um, but this is an opportunity to learn that public health um, is all about the 
the bigger numbers, the population, the community. Yeah. Yeah, we were saying before, Jay, before we went on air that, um, you know, Australia and like Western society in general is couldn't be more, you know, diametrically opposed to places like China, where it's like you've got a totalitarian state and people just are used to being told what to do when they do it. Whereas as you said here, people, it's hard to control people that we sort of have that, that sort of um, sense of we should be able to do what we want. So harder probably to control people. Yes. Um, often people look at the story of Singapore and how they stopped the spread uh, with just a few hundred cases. But it's very easy to then say, why aren't we doing the same thing as Singapore? When in fact, Singapore has a population of 5.8 million in a tiny little area. Mm. Um, our The number, the population density in Australia uh, is four times less dense than in Singapore. Uh, and it's very difficult to find everybody as they're driving uh, around to stop and uh, test their temperature. Um, I can't find any data um, publicly available to have a look at how much testing there's been per uh, thousand or per million people. It's very difficult, but I know they did a lot of testing. And they can do that when they've got a captive audience in a small little area and mm. 5.8 million. I mean, you would have thought that you know, we've got these RBTs to breathalyze people mm. all over the city every day. You could just start setting up road roadblocks and do it on the tube and sensible places where there's high density people that's and try a, in the cities. That's a very good idea because what uh, we the the test kits have been um, uh, being used for um, high risk. Um, cases. And uh, now, uh, this morning, I've heard the Prime Minister saying that our Defence Force has brought in many more kits. Mm. I think, um, given that we've got 450-odd cases to date, um, if we had all the resources, we could do that, given that at um, random breath testing, they take your license so you, they could write down on the test kit uh, and then do it later. Yeah. Um, there's a new test kit coming out. Well, let me rephrase this. There's a new test kit that's been published uh, by China where they do a finger prick uh, so that um, they, and that's very fast. Right. And apparently it's got very high sensitivity and specificity, which means it's very good at uh, identifying you're a positive case or you're a negative case. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, if you test negative, it's less likely for you to walk away when you're actually positive. And the reason being is that it tests two markers for uh, um, your uh, antibodies that you're developing. There's a marker for uh, early uh, disease phase and late. And this particular one, uh, this uh, blood one, picks up both IgG and IgM markers, where the nose, the nasopharyngeal swab, which is not very pleasant to have because uh, it goes right at the back of your nose on both sides and your throat, um, that has been giving us some 
negative tests. You know, people often say, oh, look, I tested negative. Yes. Mm. And that could be because the virus starts in the lungs and it's very hard for these swabs to be able to pick up evidence of the virus early in the disease phase in the back of your throat or your nose. Mm. So this new um, kit may work well, uh, but I'm not sure that we'd want to have a finger prick done uh, at, on the roadside. But if they, if they can develop it rapidly, perhaps that's what it will take. Mm. Yeah. Now, from what we understand, um, there's two main categories of, of patients. Um, so you've got the 80% of people who are relatively low risk or potentially walking around with very mild symptoms or maybe no symptoms at all. Um, and then you've got the people that fall into that high risk, like the 20%. So people that may require hospitalization and a small number of those people that may eventually die. Um, could you just break down for us what it actually, well, obviously you've never had it, but in terms of what you've been told, or, um, what's it like to have this um, disease and what are the symptoms and for, I guess, each of those two different, mm. two different categories of people? Okay, so... Um because this is a brand new virus and because it plays out slightly differently in each country, uh, we have to be mindful that we we can't necessarily say what we've seen in China will happen here because they did take people away and put them in a central area to ensure that uh, they weren't infecting others, trying to reduce that, which meant that you're in an area where they could keep an eye on you. Uh, but we do know that um, from China, 80% were mild cases and 20% were uh, severe or critical. We know from the Chinese data that, see that, that was one of the things that Chinese have done rapidly is not just share the virus with virologists to develop a vaccine, but they've started sharing data. So I can tell you these things. One of them is um, the average incubation period is about five to seven days, but that changes depending on whether or not we're talking about Italy or China, across China or Wuhan. But basically, it's somewhere between five and seven days. Um, once you start to become unwell, if you don't start to get better by day six or seven, you need uh, medical attention because you could be going into that category of severe. Um, and then the severe cases, we've known that if they uh, wait too long by about day 12 to be admitted to hospital into ICU, it's often a bit too late. So um, patients get what's called acute respiratory distress. Uh, so the elderly need to be looked after and looked at very carefully so that uh, you can tell whether or not uh, they need more um, support in hospital. Now, let's go back to the mild case. And this is the trick about why some people are being turned away for testing, because it can mimic uh, the influenza and just a really nasty um, rhinovirus, the cold. And this is the problem. So in an epidemiological terms, we would develop a, um, not a, a case definition of um, who you might potentially become. You might become a case if you've had contact with a um, traveller, contact with a known case, uh, been overseas, and then if you're um, presenting with a sore throat 
and a cough. They are two things that, and it's a dry cough, not a productive cough. Now, they are two important um, uh, signs and symptoms, but others have said they've had fever, but not everybody elicits a fever if they're elderly or immune suppressed. Um, Then the other one, of course, is uh, aches and pains. And as you can see, I'm now talking about any 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 viral symptoms. Confusing, right? People would go, have I got the cold or the flu or I've actually got coronavirus? Exactly. And that's why we really want you to have an influenza shot because we're going into influenza season and it will reduce the likelihood of all your signs and symptoms mimicking coronavirus and then we can keep the cost and the anxiety for you down rather than you having to put yourself in isolation. So please have your influenza shot. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we've learned about coronavirus is that um, they can cause gastro type of diseases or respiratory. And there's been about 7 to 10% of patients that have had um, really severe abdominal pain and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. So... As you can see, you could be thinking that you had, you know, one of Dodgy those. Dodgy burger, mm-hmm. anything. Exactly. Gosh. But yes, the, the sore throat and the cough, are very few people talk about a stuffy nose. Mm. And then when we're talking about a mild case, you're probably going to ask me about asymptomatics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's only a very small number and um, just looking at my notes at the moment, that are in Australia that have been um, a number of cases that are unknown for their exposure. And it's very small. And they usually, when they get examined by the authorities, get put into either the second wave or mostly direct or indirect travel-related numbers. So... um, That tells us that not a lot of spread is happening with asymptomatic cases. In China, about between 1% and 3% of cases were supposedly asymptomatic, and that's because they screened and tested rapidly, and sometimes they picked you up before you started expressing signs and symptoms. But 75% of them have gone on to developing signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. So you've got a very small proportion of between 1% and 3% of all cases that may be asymptomatic. Mm. But we haven't seen any new data that says 100% of them go on. Uh, In WHO, they suggest that if you've had contact with somebody for 48 hours, in Australia we say 24 hours, to then say whether or not you should be tested or put yourself in isolation. Now, the reason we do that is because it uh, takes account of a um, flu-like sequence where 24 hours before you express symptoms with the flu, you are highly infectious. You don't even know it. And you could be chatting to your friend on the bus and causing infection to spread. And flu is a smaller size particle and it can spread 2.5 meters. So um, that's why flu has an infectious rate of about one and a half, on average, about one and a half additional cases after you've, you know, you've spread it, then another a case will spread it, but this one's higher. Um, but we're not. We don't think at this stage that it's due to asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Slightly off point, but on the same uh, sort of trend. 
there are a lot of people saying, you know, this has all been overblown. Um, flu kills way more people per year per annum. And what's all the fuss about? Can you just address that? So in a really bad flu season, uh, you'll have 0.5% about um, fatality rate. Mm. Here, the fatality rate or the, you know, the rate of death uh, has been um, performed uh, too soon. So epidemiologists don't like to develop a, ra- a death rate as the uh, outbreak unfolds because it's so volatile. And we're not our peak Exactly. And also, we haven't given people time to recover or die. So if we do a um, mortality rate, we do it by cohort. And one way of doing it, a very simple way, and it's a little inaccurate, is you get the number of deaths, you divide at that by the number that have recovered and the number that have died, plus the number that have died. In other words, you've got a cohort that have all suffered together and some have died and some have recovered. Mm. And we know that the death rate is much higher. So I've done that on several occasions for China, and I've identified that the death rate uh, for different parts of China can be up to 7%. Wow. So uh, the adjusted globally uh, was about 6%. And then in Australia, it was huge. At one stage, it was about 16. Uh, but don't forget, we've got very, very small numbers. And if you've done statistics, you know that a small sample size can give you very varying uh, results. But um, in Italy, their adjusted rate, uh, early death rates were 55%. Wow. Now, one reason is that they have a much older population of very big group in society. The demographics are different than here and in China. And um, so the, and of course in Lombardy where it started, they've got a very big population and a big tourist group as well. So it probably had that uh, perfect storm. Perfect storm. Absolutely. Mm. And then those people were going into hospital at one stage, 50% of all cases were going into hospital. And I haven't Um, kept up to date yet with how many are still going into hospital but they were the elderly and they had uh, you know nearly a 50% chance of pulling through or or dying Mm. and that's why we don't want this outbreak in Australia and why we believe it is not the same as influenza. Now influenza you often get through your kids because they've got no antibodies and so they give it to their to the grandparents. Now fortunately the grandparents often when it comes to a novel type of um, uh, um, serotype of uh, influenza they do quite well like with swine flu and bird flu because they've lived so long that they've been exposed way before they had vaccines to all the varying types and they've built up some immunity they they got um, these uh, novel type influenza serotypes but they pulled through they did quite well Mm. Uh, now with this one um, because it goes to a receptor site um they believe that there's a relationship between that and developing inflammation. And then that inflammation then develops a pneumonia. And the kids are completely different from influenza. They're, they don't seem to be getting it. Mm. So at one stage, people are going, oh, children are driving this. But if you had a look at the 
uh, epidemiology in China, they couldn't be driving it. Uh, the, chi- the little kids from, well, zero to 19 years of age, they were about 23% of the population, but they were less than a few percentage uh, points of the whole case load. So they couldn't be driving it. Um, also, in every family in China, there's two adults plus potentially four grandparents. So there's one child to six adults. So it's unlikely that the children were driving it at all. And that's why we epidemiologists believe that keeping schools open is safe. Yes, the children are exposed to um, the, the teaching staff, and they should have priority to be tested if they believe that they're coming down with something or that they're at risk because they've spent time with somebody who's been overseas. Mm. Um, but it's probably safer to keep them in school. And I know that the um, um, teachers and the parents are concerned about the social distancing rules. And it's very difficult, but it's an example of how we have to lower, lower our expect- expectations uh, and understand that things aren't going to be perfect while we're going through this storm. It's yeah. sort of a pseudo-quarantine for kids in the daytime, isn't mm. it? Yeah. You know, yeah, keep yeah. them there. Don't keep- let them wander around Westfield. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, if you think of it that way, it's actually pretty sensible. Mm. Could part of the, um, I guess, the higher death rate reported in Italy um, and maybe even China as well was... Um, the fact that they have a large population that smoke, maybe not quite as health conscious as, say, some of the Western societies? Or is that my over- oversimplifying that? Uh, um, so at the moment, across the board, if you have comorbidities, if you're uh, into your 60s and particularly older and you've got comorbidities that include diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, respiratory um, disease or, you know, asthma, uh, what's the other one? Cancer, hypertension. You're at greater risk of severe and critical illness, and they're in your greater risk of dying. And back to your question about the smoking, that does not help. Okay. Yes. We haven't seen any data come out yet from Italy about that because they are so overwhelmed with the workload. It's enormous. But I would say that I've been told that even just one comorbidity, a minor one, um, does not help the survival rate for them in Italy at the moment. What about for someone like myself who's, you know, that's got 40, um, but I exercise regularly, eat well, all those sorts of things, but I have had childhood asthma. I occasionally get it if I get like a chest infection or something like that. I'm assuming my, my risk profile is higher. Yes, but at the moment, um, being uh, young, Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> being young means that you've got very uh, low risk. So I'm just looking at the numbers here, and the age mortality uh, for anywhere between 20 and 49 for the number of cases is very small, really small. So you should be okay. Okay. And just want to sort of, I don't know if this puts you in a difficult position because you're partly talking for you know the who and you're partly speaking for yourself but if we're not testing people these numbers are just sort of plucked out the sky almost because we we don't actually know how many infections we have so what you're talking about is ascertainment bias and you're quite right so who believe that you should test 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 yes. and then They've isolate been very clear about that haven't very they? very clear and one of the problems is um that 
we don't have enough testing here because we don't have enough test kits. They take about five days. Mm -hmm. So I believe as an epidemiologist that the numbers are five days old at least. And so we need to be doing more um, strong social isolation, keep the kids in school, let their parents go to work, but keep them safe mm. by telling them very simple things like when you're on the bus or the train, don't talk. When you talk, you're pushing the particles out of your mouth and sure, most of them will fall to the ground because I'm not coughing and uh, and coughing helps. However, we did a test uh, with influenza A and B and several other type of respiratory infections to find the size of particles. And a lot of infections have many different size particles and meaning that they're smaller and they, they, or they're larger and they fall heavier. This one, of course, starts in the lungs and will take a while to come up and then you'll start coughing. But I'm just suggesting if you want to keep, um, if you want to give the, po the population some sensible and some easy uh, guidelines to get them through the day and to, to keep uh, society going around, get in the bus, get in the train, listen to your iPod, um, don't uh, chat. Certainly don't laugh. Try not to cough. If you're coughing, stay home. Don't wear a mask because we don't have enough. But also we're not the epicenter like Wuhan. But wear a mask if you think you've got a little bit of a cough, but you think you really are not going to be a case. Mm. Then get onto the helpline to find out uh, whether or not you should get tested. And probably you shouldn't get tested, but they'll tell you about and they'll work out your risk factors So and use alcohol-based hand rub before you hop onto the bus or the train and use alcohol-based hand rub when you get off the bus or the train. Uh, simple things like that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, m my personal fear is, you know, China managed to lock down the hotbed of this problem by literally locking everyone up in their houses. And they still had 80,000 cases and three and a half thousand deaths. In Australia, we're still at early part of that curve, but... We're walking around, shopping, cafes, restaurants, being told all this socialization and no one's doing it. And the government are sort of saying, well, that's okay. It really worries me. Yeah, look, um, so as an epidemiologist, not having anything to do, I'm not um, uh, representing myself as an advisor to WHO. As an epidemiologist... We believed going in hard and fast so that the pain is less and so we prevent less infections because we know that if the R0, the contagion, gets anywhere near three, and that means that one case can cause three infections, but at the moment we think it's two, mm. but so it is higher than flu, but in the perfect condition, it can be 3.9. So let's round that up to four. So anywhere between two and three or four, once it gets to three, you've got to prevent 75% of cases to be able to control it. Yeah. So that prevention um, effort is enormous. And what it should start with is very strong border protection. Uh, and because... We're an island. It's the perfect start. Border protection. Then keep the kids at school, 
but self-isolate and forget about a number. There's no magic number and modelers may put in a number and then think, all right, the contagion level might be the R naught, maybe two. Mm. So this is what will happen if it's 50 or 55 or 500. So I, I have criticized the number that has been given out only because it doesn't make sense. I've never heard of 500. I've never heard of this model that they are, um, or they say that it's been from experience from overseas, but in some places they said 50 and now they've changed their mind and said five. So instead of confusing the population, just go, I'm very sorry, but unless um, that venue has a way of keeping you apart and you keep your voice down and there's no raucous laughing and coughing, etc., um, then I'm really sorry, but it's going and getting a takeaway meal and going home, yep. uh, having new ways of waiting in line with a really, really big social distance. Like we've seen in Italy. Yes. So Italy made, I think, a mistake. So they had a rule that said that you could go normally around your business between 6 in the morning and 6 p.m. at night. And then, of course, I, I, last time I looked, Italy had, I think they've got something like um, 26,000 cases. Nice. So then they had to put in a rule that said, no, I'm sorry, there's no 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. going to coffee shops and bars, etc. There's... You can go to the bank, you can go to get your shopping, and you can go to the pharmacy. But, but, I mean, I don't understand the government's uh, thinking that, you know, the virus is going to respect six till six. It's no. nonsense. Well, I believe that like the number of 500 in Australia and like the six to six initially in Italy, our leaders try to be all things. They try to be... Uh, protectors of the uh, economy, yeah. protectors of social fabric and public health experts are looking after the public good, but they're going to fail at all of those yeah. because um, the economy is going to tank a bit anyway, but it will, it will, if you give, if you give less time um, for the spread and we contain it, then we have more time for the economy to get better. Yes. If you tell people consistently, don't do this, um, this is why, then you'll have better social fabric um, and they won't be concerned. So I believe, like Italy, our government was trying to be too many things to too many people. They have an advisory group, and I believe it's probably that includes epidemiologists and modelers, etc. But I would implore them to get somebody from China who has had experience with SARS and now COVID-19 to come in and say... Enough is enough. Enough is... This is what I would do. Gosh. I was just thinking, how lucky must Bill Shorten feel that he lost that election because... <laughs> <laughs> We've had bushfires, hail, floods, drought, and now this virus. He must be thinking, gosh, that was – I'm glad I didn't win that one because yes. um, I don't think it's an enviable, enviable position for any and politician to be in, yeah. in this sort of seat at the moment. Now, we're unfortunately heading into winter down here in the Southern Hemisphere. So we're going to have all these uh, wonderful other viruses floating around that, that sort of tend to do the rounds every year. How does this impact coronavirus? I mean, you're going to have people that are already sick with influenza that then cop this as well. I mean, can they get two of these sicknesses at the same time? And is that going to change the landscape of sort of how this all plays out? Yeah. 
So I go back to the mantra of this is brand new and we don't know an awful lot. And then I'll go to history. So in Hong Kong, there was a case called YY. That's just an abbreviation. YY had um, hemodialysis and would come across the border from China to visit uh, his relatives in what's called Amoy Garden, which is a large um, number of apartment blocks. He'd stay there and he'd go to one of the hospitals to get his hemodialysis and then he'd go back and stay with his brother and sister-in-law. Now, he wasn't feeling very well and this was early in the days before they had a a really good handle on this because I'm not criticizing Hong Kong. I think they did an amazing job. So YY picked up influenza. He then uh, explained to the hospital that he wasn't feeling very well and they cohorted him accidentally with SARS patients and found, they tested him and found he had influenza and let him go. And I think that was probably the only mistake that Hong Kong made because they did an amazing job. Then he took his influenza and now he's going to be incubating SARS back to the Amoy Garden. Mm. And as we know in history, um, they had an enormous outbreak, but it changed the virus. So 66% of cases from Amoy Garden expressed it as diarrhea. They then went to hospital. They um, were a little bit of a surprise to the healthcare workers and uh, they caught SARS themselves. There was a spike in healthcare worker acquisition. So, yes, we know that somebody can have two infections concurrently. Probably doesn't happen very often, but we learn a lot from case YY Mm. about how it may change. He was also immunosuppressed Mm. and it may change the expression of the virus. So, yes, you can probably get both. Mm. And that's why you should have influenza uh, vaccine, please. Now, forgetting economics and availability of the test, let's just think scientifically. Who should be tested, in your opinion? Mm. So, somebody that has... um, a history of travel should be tested. Uh, somebody that has uh, that works with children should be tested whenever they need to be tested. Uh, healthcare workers whenever they need to be tested. Uh, people with uh, asthma or a comorbidity uh, whenever they need to be tested. So there needs to be priority. Uh, because we're we don't have bucket loads of money, and we probably if we focus on those groups, Mm. we may not need to have everybody tested. I mean, I did like your idea of the roadside testing that gives us an idea of um, the likelihood, the attack rate out there. It's it's a nifty idea, but at the moment, we've got so few that we can't work out where the hotspot is yet to do that. Yeah. Mm. Now, what can people do, I guess, for, you know, people that are listening to this podcast and think, okay, great, this, all this information is very helpful, but what can I do? to lessen my chances of contracting the virus or doing things to put me in good stead to be able to get over it quickly. So in terms of boosting their immune system, vitamins, minerals, certain foods, sleep, all these sorts of things, what are some tips? Yeah, look, I'm just an epidemiologist, so um, I won't get into the nutrition. Sorry, yeah. No, no, that's fine. But um, I will push the idea of an influenza vaccine. That will certainly reduce your 
um, comorbidity. Uh, and it will also reduce the uh, surge on the fever clinics uh, because last time we had uh, influenza, uh, H1N1 or H3N2, there was enormous surge of people going there that didn't have influenza. So we've learned. The, the next thing is um, what can you do to protect yourself? Good hand hygiene, mm. really good hand hygiene, because we know, I uh, had a PhD student um, do, uh, we observed a couple of, um, well, a couple of hours worth of medical students sitting in captive audience in lectures, and we watched them. We got ethics approval, and on <laughs> average, they touch their face 23 times an hour, and um, a lot of those touches, a third, are to the mouth or the nose or the eyes, or then a combination of those. So we know that your um, uh, receptor sites in your lungs and you don't want to be breathing anything in if you put it up to your nose. And they've also just published a paper about receptor sites in the salivary gland, so don't put your hands to your, your mouth. Uh, we know that the alcohol, the, the ethanol and the isopropanol together uh, will um, kill bacteria and viruses uh, and it's very good at killing this envelope virus because it's easy to break the outside of the virus and stop it from uh, entering those receptor sites that cause us to be sick and soap and water works brilliantly. You can't always get your, your hands on uh, water, soap and water uh, when you're out and about. So carry your alcohol-based hand rub or hand wipes. At the very least, if you don't have, if you can't get your hands on alcohol-based hand rub because of the crazy run-on on, you know, that um, stocking and hoarding behavior, if you can get some hand wipes. Um, and even if they don't have alcohol in them, you basically removing any any germs that have hijacked onto your fingertips and focus around there. Social distancing. Uh, I like sh handshaking, but I am not doing it. And it doesn't feel good, but I am learning to cooperate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so no handshaking, uh, no hugging. Uh, and you've probably got very little risk of getting it at the moment, but it's about cooperation and getting all of us getting on board. And then if you're feeling ill or one of your family is, get them to stay at home. Mm -hmm. So we need to do the Japanese bow. Maybe that's what we can take. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I like the namaste. Yeah. The namaste, oh, yeah. yes. Namaste. Very, very mm -hmm. good. Or the hand to the chest. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, it did make me laugh, and I'm not trivializing this, but we were told about a week or two ago to sneeze into your elbow and then we were told to elbow bump everyone to say hello. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Good well, point, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important that we still, while this is very serious, that we do maintain our sense of humour because it helps, you know, if mm. things are all doom and gloom, people mm -hmm. tend to, to get down pretty quickly. I yes. think we've got to try and uh, maintain some level of sensible humour to keep uh, ourselves sane. I agree. I think uh, that's the lovely thing about Australians. We are very... Um, uh, non-differential, yeah. uh, very um, informal folk, informal, and uh, like to laugh at basically anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I, I don't know if you're in the know. I don't know if you can say even if you do know. But what do you think is going to happen socially and economically in the next couple of weeks? Um, I haven't heard the prime minister's um, announcement this morning. 
Um, but apparently he was going to announce some social distancing um, for public venues. So I would forecast in a in a magic um, um, bowl that all social venues are going to be called off. So we're going to have to get used to uh, hopping online and watching our favourite football or Playing concert. Scrabble. Yep. Playing Scrabble, make sure you wash your hands first. Um, being a little bit more, um, I think we did it in the 80s and 90s. Remember, we did a bit of uh, cocooning when the economy wasn't so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Learning how to cook. Um, and uh, look, I know we say no social distance, no social distancing in public, but you can still have some friends over if they haven't been traveling mm. and they don't have any sickness. Um, have some friends over in small numbers. Um, don't give them a hug, but, you know, make sure you hand hygiene before you cook. So when you do your shopping and you come home and you put your shopping bags up on the counter, first hand hygiene, then unpack your shopping. And then once you take the bags off the counter, clean the counter with soap and water or one of those products that have detergent in there because that's very good. Yeah. And now you're living in your own bubble. And that bubble should be safe. Mm. So, David, I can come over, but don't serve me bat. <laughs> don't <laughs> that serve right? me bat. Yes. Speaking of bubbles, let's talk about if you had a crystal ball, so same shape. Um, what do you think is going to happen? How do, you, how do you think this is going to play out and how long do you think it's going to take? If we don't cooperate and if we don't hold fast our a border protection, we will then potentially see a batting about of this virus between the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere. And that's why I don't support the UK or the Netherlands approach that they've been mm, toying with about look after the elderly, but just don't worry about the virus and let everything um, happen accordingly. And we'll, and what we would happen is what would happen here is in the southern hemisphere is that we'd be doing our level best to try to keep it at a minimum, and then um, the summertime would happen over there. But as they're going into spring, oh, sorry, autumn, then we'd give it back to them and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, if that were to happen, viruses, most viruses, don't try to kill us. It's not in their best interest. Most, uh, mostly they try to um, adapt and it may well adapt, but it may kill so many people in the meantime. Mm. Um, or the um, treatments that we're giving them in hospital, because it's experimental, we don't have anything to give them at the moment, may have long-term sequelae, which means they may um, leave the hospital, but not in the, in the best shape. Mm. So I think that was one of our questions that we were submitted by a listener that, you know, can you go home and then be reinfected or are you a carrier to then still be at risk to other people? Yeah. Back to the mantra, it's brand new, we're not sure. But if we look at some of the other coronaviruses, sometimes the um, immunity is short-lived and sometimes it's a bit longer. Mm. Now, we've had only one case, a 70-year-old man who supposedly was positive, was very ill, then got better and tested negative and then tested positive again. So the question was, has he got a new infection? Now, in medicine, there's a mantra of common things happen commonly and 
perhaps at 70, he tested negative towards the end um, because he either couldn't elicit a positive response, the the test uh, didn't pick it up, or um, he had a relapse. So at the moment, we don't know and we don't suspect there's reinfections. Mm. So a, another infection. Okay. Um, at the moment. So we've seen um, in the news over the past couple of days, it looks like there has been some some progress made in terms of potentially looking for a vaccine or something that can treat people that have already got the disease. So I think that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, they're experimenting with HIV drugs, anti-malaria drugs, maybe something with Ebola as well. Um, some of these drugs have already, obviously these drugs are already approved for use. So I guess we can fast track how quickly they can get out there. What do you know about sort of how we're going with that and how successful we've been so far and could we be onto something in terms of a, a cure? So at the we have the WHO meeting on the 11th and the 12th of February and most of the um, interest was uh, for therapeutics and vaccines and we in infection control and epidemiology felt uh, the unloved child but you can imagine it was of great interest and they were talking about they had um, the candidate candidate virus um, but developing a vaccine it takes a long time so in reality we're looking at 18 months to two years if they could fast track it we're still having to decide the ethics of who should get it. So potentially older, older people probably should be those that get it first. Anybody with a comorbidity, anybody with including asthma, for example, uh, should possibly get it. Anybody over and just looking at the numbers of, um, of deaths, anybody over, let's say, 50 and over if you've still got enough. So it's about... Um, how how fast do you elicit antibodies once you've been vaccinated? With the flu vaccine, some people elicit a response rapidly and others take many weeks before it covers them. So we're still not going to be out of the woods for this season. Right. And I think it's a future. And one would hope that this vaccine, if they've developed it, can then be adapted if we see a similar coronavirus occur later on down the track. Um, talking about the uh, therapeutics, uh, remdesivir is being trialed. There's about a 55 trial sites around the, the globe. I haven't seen any data yet. That was developed for Ebola in, um, in the lab. Um, uh, I believe in the lab the results weren't overly promising, but it may be different in the humans, so I, I don't want to dampen anybody's expectation there. Mm. But then they're thinking about uh, pairing that up with chloroquine, which is a very safe drug for malaria, um, and then HIV drugs, which are very safe, that have been tested well. Uh, so there are potentials, and they possibly have... Um, faster track into of uh, the very sick and the, the severe and the critical. Now, one of the problems with drug trials, and I haven't done a drug trial for a long time since I was a postgrad, and for those of you listening, I'm quite elderly now. I'm getting in, into my now. senior years. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Um, drug trials 
uh, only work well, only give you good results for generalizability if you don't have a bias group. And for example, in the early days of HIV, when they had an antiviral and they gave it to people that were very sick and had had HIV for a long time, it didn't look as if it was working. That's because they found out later that you needed good T-cell count for it to work well. The same thing might happen with this, so that if you're starting to get very sick, uh, some of these therapeutics may not work well when you're critical, they make work work better when you're severe but not critical. So as they're rolling out some of these um, trials, um, we need time to work out um, do they not work at all or do they only work in some groups? Yeah. Mm. Can I touch on something that came to light, I think it was just yesterday, about using ibuprofen or non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatory drugs in young people? Mm-hmm. I think it's important that we sort of get that message out if it's true. I don't mm-hmm. want to... Yes. Have all wrong information, but what's your understanding of the problem with that? Yeah, so what Jake's talking about is that these um, uh, anti-inflammatories, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories you can buy over the counter may place you more at risk of um, becoming infected and becoming ill. I haven't looked at the data because that's a brand new theory that's come out in the last couple of days. And I have seen it bandied about. And um, what it's basically saying is if you dampen your ability to elicit a response um, or you take tablets to reduce the temperature, you're not helping your body uh, develop a response. And and that is a fairly well um, a known theory for lots of different infections. Is it is it a bad thing to stop us from getting uh, eliciting a temperature? And and as you know, with little kids, yeah. um, it's a good thing not to let uh, their their little brains uh, boil with really high temperatures. Yeah. So where do you uh, intervene? Uh, is the big question. And should you not be taking um, a, an over the counter? anti-inflammatory and I think until the data is out and we're fairly sure about it because often these things come out and they get published really rapidly um, and that can then make us think that it's true but in the meantime if you can maybe just take a Panadol instead of an anti-inflammatory, Exactly, you may be safer. Yeah, I think um, paracetamol, just forget COVID, etc. It's just a better antipyretic. Yeah. So if you take that four times a day at the appropriate dose for your age, yes. then ibuprofen doesn't need to come into the equation. Yeah. If you're still not getting top of your fevers, get some medical help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an interesting story about the asymptomatic cases. So really early on, there was a small outbreak in Germany where somebody from China had come to join the meeting. She went back and she was found to be a case and caused a cluster. Right. And they wrote it up and it got rapid peer review. And this uh, medical journal is a very fine medical journal. And it uh, was found out later on that that supposed asymptomatic case who went back to China actually had symptoms. She'd used um, a paracetamol, uh, but she'd had aches and pains. Mm. So rapid publication about these things, you've got to take it at face value. Yes, as as I mentioned before, there may be 25% of people that do remain asymptomatic. And yes, ibuprofen may be problematic. So in the meantime, 
Take your Panadol. Yeah, yeah. if you can get any. Apparently, it's all been yes. taken off the shelf. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's in, it's in high demand, but yeah, it's all mm. gone. Mm. Um, what does the recovery sort of look like for your average person who who maybe was in hospital what, what are the long-term sequelae well, we don't know the long-term sequelae but what do we think is going to be the case yeah um well for going back to SARS for the who were um very ill and the physicians had no idea how to treat them they threw at them steroids and for them they often had um some of them had long-term sequelae with uh, nerve damage mm. um so well, that, that wasn't common. And don't forget, they had 5,000 cases. And we're talking <laughs> many more thousand, around yeah. the world. So uh, it, with 80% having mild cases and not needing hospitalization to control their um, disease, uh, for them, walking away at the moment may look fine. They mm. may actually just bounce back uh, as if they've had a nasty flu. But we don't know yet... Um, I mean, some of the sequelae may be some sort of depression even. I mean, mm. sometimes people get depressed when they've had a very uh, life-threatening or perceived life-threatening disease. Yeah. Um, people often suffer from PTSD. So it's not just the the physical, it's the mental issue as well. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, uh, a mild case looks like by about day seven, day eight, you should be over it. And what about your potential to infect? Do we know that? Because mm -hmm. we were initially told self-isolate for seven days. Mm -hmm. I think that's now jumped to 14 days. Yes, yes. And uh, that's probably due to the fact that it can be very hard for uh, this, this current test that tests only f uh, for a certain phase of the disease mm. um, to give you an accurate result. So 14 days, that extra seven gives you um, that extra safety net. That makes it very difficult for healthcare workers who we want back into the health um, arena. And at WHO, we've been developing uh, potential emergency guidelines. So for a healthcare worker who's had um, a unimportant exposure, so maybe they've known somebody or worked with somebody, um, we don't want to run out of healthcare workers, so mm. they may need to wear a surgical mask at all time rather than putting themselves away for 14 days. Yeah. I don't Whilst, think we've yeah. actually addressed the mask issue because, of course, there's different types of masks and, you know, I guess any barrier, even if you're protecting your own droplets against other people, is better than nothing. But can you just clarify what people should be doing mm -hmm. if you can get hold of a mask? Well, you can't get any masks. So, um, And also the supply for masks are now being uh, rolled out by the government as I uh, understand it. So healthcare workers can get more masks. But um, there, there are basically two types of masks. Now, in China, which was the epicenter, they were asked to wear a mask because the probability of you coming in contact with somebody that was incubating it and at that stage of being what we call a serial interval at about day five, six, seven or eight, that you're most infectious, uh, to prevent that, they got everyone to wear a mask. Now, the sort of masks that work well are surgical masks, not a cloth mask. And 
I've seen those great looking black masks, but I don't know what they're made of. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have on them that they uh, can repel uh, what's called a most penetrating particle, which is actually a salt particle, uh, at 95%, then it's not good enough. Mm. It just looks great. It really looks cool. But it makes you feel better. Mm. So we need, um, we need to wear motorcycle helmets. Sorry? Um, <laughs> we need to wear motorcycle helmets. Motorcycle. Cover the whole face, oh, yes, visor. Yeah. Yes, yes. So in a hospital, they wear like a, a face shield. Yeah. And it's, very, it's very effective. So um, surgical masks that have a little gap at the side will protect you because you're not actually entering into a cloud. Um, most of it comes at you or you're picking it up or someone's Direct. coughing at you. Mm. And uh, the idea of it having to be sealed it comes from the hospital situation where healthcare workers perform what's called aerosol generating procedures where you intubate a patient or you're causing them to expel very small particles. So you want your whole face to be protected. So you have a seal around the mask. Uh, they're very hot and they can be highly uncomfortable and you don't wear those for very long. What about wearing... Yeah, sounds ridiculous, but uh, it's a barrier sunglasses. Absolutely. So in hospital, they're getting people to wear goggles or a face shield that they can clean and reuse and a surgical mask if they're not performing an aerosol generating procedure. In other words, they're protecting your eyes. Yes. Now, we don't know if there's a receptor site in your eyes, but, they, but you know, there's ducts that go down the back of your, your, you know, your nose and your throat. Yes. So it's very sensible for flu as well. So okay. yes, wear, wear cool dark glasses. Sunnies and yep. any surgical mask if you can get hold of one. Yes. Jake just wants to be able to wear sunglasses inside. <laughs> Not at all. But <laughs> now, the reason I ask, uh, I'm on a WhatsApp group with about 50 um, injectors around the world and we've all been sending photos of each other and <laughs> we're all doing it you know that's what we're trying to do in our yeah. clinics yeah. yeah no wear it wear your glasses absolutely because <laughs> you're getting want... close and you're you're more than uh you're sorry you're closer than a meter away mm. yeah. uh, from your patient so wear wear a mask and protect your eyes um we had a few questions that um i think we got to one a little bit earlier in the podcast but is any other questions um that any of our listeners wanted to ask mary louise well i guess you know just speaking from the injector community which is a lot of our listeners is pretty much carrying on from what i was just talking about so there is a lot of guilt that injectors are still working and they're, they're wondering whether they should be working should they not be working you know the fact that up until today at least restaurants and cafes are open presumably work but not socializing goes on yeah. until you're told otherwise. I agree. Uh, continue working. Um, clean your, um, your clinic. Of course. So wear your mask. Uh, show your patients and your clients that you're cleaning your hands in front of them. Have the alcohol-based hand rub in the waiting room. Yep. Ask your clients as they come in to hand hygiene before they sit down. That way you know the environment's relatively clean. Regularly clean the bathroom that they use, which is the door, the door handles, the push, the flush button, uh, the taps, etc. cetera. Uh, and um, wear eye protection. The, your patients and clients will be protected from you and they can go in without having to wear that as well. Yeah. So there's somebody there that's having the barrier. So both of you don't need that barrier. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is all 
anecdotal online and things are getting a bit, um, you know, you can see a bit of anger sort of creeping in there. Some people criticizing doctors and nurses doing, you know, non life saving work like injectables. Um, but, you know, mm. I think until the government says you need to stop, we have to balance that with the economics. Well, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's a bit from a business owner's perspective. It's it's quite difficult because you're sort of trying to balance this, you know, the the health side of things. But we're still being told to go to work. There's still bills to be paid. There's more you know, people have got mortgages, loans, all these sorts of things, and no one said anything yet about, um, you know, there'd be economic relief in terms of you know, say, a moratorium on mortgages or things like that. So I think the people are fearful. Mm. They go, I don't really want to go to work, but hey, guess what? I've got bills to pay. Mm. I've got a business that I can't let go bankrupt. Um, it just almost feels like to get compliance, the government just needs to say, stop, everything stops. We're just going to pretend the next three months haven't happened <laughs> and then we move forward. But obviously yeah, that's not possible. Yeah, I think no. it's a challenge. People feel conflicted between, you know, losing their home um, potentially. But, or And this is where social distancing <coughs> is important. But those that are in the, bi the business of uh, running concerts, etc., are going to suffer. So they need support from the government. But in the meantime, we need to continue to go to work. Mm, yeah. So continue your business and put in place infection prevention um, guidelines. I mean, I know I've asked in my work that the shared um, kitchen has a sign that says before entering hand hygiene. So because you're going to touch all sorts of surfaces, mm. just use your alcohol-based hand rub uh, a lot yeah. everywhere and, um, and try not to congregate, um, have more social interaction at home. Because if somebody does get sick, then contact tracing is so much faster. Yeah. You know who you've, who you've met. Um, go about your business, uh, go shopping, go and get your coffee, do all of those things, uh, keep your voice down, just get on with it and... You know, I noticed that there's a coffee shop nearby and everyone's sitting outside. Fantastic. We need to be innovative so that we can continue business as usual while putting in place the most important infection prevention and control measures. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you uh, maybe end, and this is a bit of a philosophical question, can you think of any positives we can take out of this or any changes that for the longer term are yeah. going to be better for all of us? I think infection... And, and control is now going to be on the forefront of everyone's minds that we have to do things without the idea of a vaccine always saving us. I rarely see parents get uh, give their children hand wipes or alcohol-based hand rub when they're out and just about to eat because we, we live in an environment where we think we're covered um, and yet we've got norovirus and that's pretty awful. Um, so I think we're going to learn hand hygiene, and we're going to learn about the importance of looking after each other. We come from a democracy where we encourage uh, the individual, and we're so um, focused on developing the next leader instead of developing a social cohesion mm. within our democracy. And I think that this may help us to understand that individual actions can make or break a society mm. so that we need to cooperate to in, ensure that this outbreak can stop very rapidly. And I think that's what we might learn. The other thing that we need to learn is lower our expectations of everything being perfect mm. and the unexpected. Mm. Yeah. 
we could probably learn a lot from our or my grandparents when they went through the war and that sort of community spirit that we we're going to go through some of that or a lot of that I think yeah absolutely so you know their expectations were certainly not like uh, millennials etc they've been very fortunate and I think um Hearing some of the anxiety, particularly from parents who uh, can't get a, a full infection prevention for social distancing in school, uh, may not be able to cope with the idea of staggering school start times, etc., just to reduce the amount of socialisation at the front of the of the schoolyard, etc. And it makes me um, sad that we're not learning to relax into uncertainty. Mm. And I think that's one of our um, the take-home message for this. I mean, some people live in war environments constantly and they learn, take every day as it comes and love it and then learn to roll with the punches. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to sort of end things off. Um, thank you so much for your time and, and for Jake for organising. I mean, you know, uh, normally our podcasts run for about 45 minutes. We're almost at an hour and a half now because we feel this is such critical, important information. You know, there's people are getting things from the news and internet, but I guess to hear it from someone in Australia that's an expert in this field, we really do appreciate you taking the time. We know you're busy, so really thank you very much. Thank anytime. you very much. Get back to the, the trenches. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Jake, anytime. And thanks for the coffee. Keep safe. Thank you. Thank you. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.